Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. America has a new leader. Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States of America. What the turnout, the demographics of the vote, all mean. Urban areas save the nation, right? Black voters save this nation. And what the slim margin says about the future of the Democratic Party. Democrats won the battle, but they may have lost the war. We dig in. Then the GOP is not yet ready to concede, citing distrust of the electoral process. No matter who's declared the winner of this, we're going to see a segment of this population that's going to simply say, not my president. What does this say about the state of our democracy? We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. We have a new president. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have secured more than 270 electoral votes needed to take the White House and Pennsylvania, put them over the top. And now Joe Biden will become the nation's 46th president. To discuss what the turnout and the vote means for America and for the Commonwealth is Larry Seisler, principal of Seisler Media and Issue Advocacy, and Jasmine Sessoms, CEO and founder of She Can Win. Welcome to Flashpoint. Great to be here. Hey. Democrats wanted a landslide and Trump just wanted to hold on. Biden has had the edge and kept moving forward. Your reaction to how things went down. Urban areas save the nation, right? Black voters save this nation. Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Detroit are what turned it around in these urban areas. I need the Democratic Party to start giving us our flowers up front. We're going to need a seat at that table, like immediately. Yeah. We're not stopping with Senator Harris. What's your reaction, Larry? I think what happened, and I'm going to be a little more downbeat, and I agree with what Jasmine said about, about Black voters. But I think in a sense what happened this week is that Democrats won the battle, but they may have lost the war, at least in terms of 2020. I mean, when you look at these numbers, these are very, these are very stark. I mean, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump basically because he's a better person than, than, than Donald Trump. But you see that Republicans, people, what, they split their ballots. We saw that in suburban Philadelphia, for, for instance, which, you know, we'll probably talk about. 
But I think for Democrats, a lot of introspection has to go into what happened this week. Uh, a record number of Americans, uh, roughly 159 million Americans likely cast their ballot in this election more than ever, right? So what does that say about the country? And then we, if we, this is record turnout, not just nationwide, but in Pennsylvania, more than 9 million people registered to vote. You want an engaged electorate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you want. You know, usually when you don't have a high turnout, it means, okay, well, people are okay with, with the status quo. But you didn't have that this time. I mean, you had a record turnout. I mean, Philadelphia didn't get to Obama numbers. Jasmine, you may know better, but I think they got pretty close. And I think they got, they might've had Obama margins, but definitely uh, they did better than four years ago. The great thing about Democrats was they looked at 2016 and they were just shocked. And then they came out again in 2017, which was an off year. They came out in 2018 when Republicans didn't come out. So now it's 2020, everybody comes out. What Democrats have to continue to do is to keep coming out because there is a lot more work to be done. A lot of people were voting against Donald Trump and not necessarily for Biden. Does that make a difference? It most certainly does. Um, the, the other day I read something that said Biden got even more votes than Obama. That does not make Biden the better candidate. It was the messaging, the investments of each party on driving people to vote. And it's, you know, it is a boiler point right now in not just our city, not just our commonwealth, but in our country, right? Pandemic civil unrest. It's all of these things that are happening right now that are getting people to pay attention, that are pulling their eyes and energy into a focal point, and that is government matters. Something that we've probably all been preaching on this uh, Zoom call forever. The government and elected officials matter. And now our country is starting to catch up. But Larry, I 100%, we won, you know, Democrats won the race but by far not the war because I, you know, to even have something this close with, with, and we are completely nonpartisan, but like a good person, you know, and a bad person who spews hate <laughs> and dog whistles. This is a close election. He, right. he, uh, you know, Biden is leading in Georgia by like 1500 votes, a little bit more. That That's is, still amazing though. That's is, still amazing. That is amazing that they flipped Georgia. But <laughs> they flipped Georgia. They flipped I, Georgia. And as a former Georgia resident, I am shocked because 10 years ago, we, we would have never believed that that could happen. Um, but let's look thanks, a little bit further Stacey down. Abrams. Let's yeah. look down at the Senate seats, though. You know what I mean? Like, let's look down at the Senate seats. We most certainly might have won the, the battle, right? But we haven't flipped the Senate. Yeah. We haven't flipped the Senate. And seats in the House. Yeah. <laughs> and so let's peel back these later layers a little bit. Biden was viewed... Um, more favorably among voters, but Trump led among white voters. 56% of Mm -hmm. white people voted for Trump. Uh, He crushed it among evangelicals with 76% of the vote, but Biden got young voters, women, minority voters. What does it say? I mean, there's clearly a racial divide, Larry, in this country, um, and even a gender divide in in some respects. Oh, there's lots of kinds of divides. I mean, there's an education divide, there's an income divide. I mean, there, there's lots of division. You know, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot about messaging. And um, Trump, there's something about Trump that he appeals. I mean, I think there's a lot of bad things, but there's also a lot of people who feel left behind and they feel, and they feel marginalized. Now, a lot, 
listen, there's a lot of people in Philadelphia who feel who feel that way. And, and they and they should and they should feel that way because government, you know, government has 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 failed them, has as Jasmine said. But there is a divide, but it's fueled by like this just hyper partisan rhetoric where nothing, nothing can get nothing can get through. Nothing can get through. And I mean, I think the hope for Biden and, and it's and it's hard is he has to, he has to calm things. Because there is a lot of commonality between a a white rural voter in Clearfield County, in the middle of the state, and an urban voter in in North in, on Clearfield Street, basically. You know, th- th- you know there is, and um, and people have and people have to find people have to find it because yeah. we we're we're going we're going down a really bad place as a nation. You know something that I thought that you know, I would never see. And I was so shocked to see so many um, poor rural white voters come out for Trump and just by the tens of thousands, but I, I gotta switch to the- to well, the Cherry, but Cherry, you know these same people, a lot of them voted for Obama. They did, yeah, they did. And that's what was so <laughs> shocking. And so Jasmine, I gotta switch this pivot a little bit. Women, black women came through Hispanic women, 70% went for Biden, but majority of white women stuck with Donald Trump. Could you yeah. talk about that phenomenon? What does it say? So I've been reading um, some very early white papers on the election. And even though it shows that white women are not agreeing with Trump's views, they are voting with their husbands because their husbands are head of the households and they're voting more in their husband's interest and voting their pockets versus voting for the people, right? For the common good. And, you know, Black women came through, Hispanic women came through, but there is an increase in Black women in 2016, 4% voted for Trump. We're at 8%. Mm. You cannot ignore that. You can't ignore that there was an uptick after seeing him in action, right? Even with Black men, there was an uptick from 2016 to now. Yeah. And a bigger one. So we have to look at where did we where did we miss? How did what attracted them over? How did they, that level increase? You can't ignore that because people are trying to pass it off as uh, people were uninformed. They didn't like Biden. They didn't like Harris. They were uninspired. It's more than that. It's, it's something th- different. Yeah. And I got it, Larry. Uh, Trump lost a few points for white men, especially educated white men kind of flipped over to Biden. The white guys stepped up a little bit. What's can you talk about that piece? Well, it, it's just his, it's his personality. I mean, I'll tell you what concerns me, Jasmine. I don't know if you, but I think if, if Trump wasn't such a divisive personality and if Trump hadn't mishandled COVID or at least tried to handle it, I think he would have been reelected. I, I think he would, I think he would have been, re, I think he would have been reelected. And I think with black voters, I think that there's an economic message that that they're hearing. And I think that the Democrats have they have to speak to it. And the Democrats have another they have another issue that's going to that's going to start up as soon as Biden becomes president is the schism between the, the progressives, Democratic socialists and the more the more moderates. I mean, the people who lost those House seats were moderates. Those are the people who made the majority for Nancy Pelosi. And listen, we're seeing it in Pennsylvania today. 
with a lot of the House, with House Democrats, House Democratic candidates in Western Pennsylvania who lost, who should have won, who are blaming it on the progressive message coming from the Democratic Socialists. Yeah. That is and so I think true. And this is perfect to tee it up because let's talk about that. I mean, they eked it out. Democrats eked it out. But they're, I mean, Larry is, is talking about what does the future of the Democratic Party look like? Because clearly this was this was a squeaker, squeaker in a lot of states. And so you, what do they need to change? Um, because clearly they need to attract more people to make this coalition stick. No, the Democrats need to unify the party immediately. I mean, that a third party is becoming a, a huge issue for the Democrat. Let's look at Josh Shapiro's race, Nina Ahmad's race, and Joe Torsella. I mean, I got to tell you, Josh is eking by with our mail-in votes. Nina is not, because that third party vote really pulled her down when I looked at it this morning. Like, she was neck and neck, and that third party vote just keeps ticking up and ticking up. Joe too, Joe Tricella, that third party vote is detracting from those democratic votes, right? So we have to figure out a way to really unify the party because too many people are saying, you know what? I don't like either candidate, this third party, or I'm just not gonna get involved in it. The Democrats have to get the messaging together, certainly more on that economic piece, uh, Larry, because I do know a few people that are like, Biden presidency is not good for our big business. Somehow the Democrats are missing that economic engine piece that that really is going to drive the nation, especially coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. And Larry, com comment on this, because at, at, there were so many voters who I spoke to who cast their ballots on Election Day, who said specifically they were not they did not like the Biden-Harris ticket, but they just could not deal with four more years of President Donald Trump. And so how do you, I mean, four years from now, you may not, it may be a whole different situation and they might not be willing to yeah, stick you with can't, the Biden-Harris ticket. You can't have a coalition that's based on opposing one individual. That's right. So that's, that's what it comes down to. But that's what they're going to have to figure out. But Jasmine makes a point about our statewide row offices. I mean, it's going to go for a while, but Josh Shapiro, who just has a stellar record, okay, and people know him, he's he's basically, he's going to get by, not not by much. I think that Nina is going to lose. By the way, to a black Republican, who I think not too many people know, and I believe, and Jasmine, you can correct me, he may be the first black elected statewide outside of um, judicial offices. That is absolutely correct. He will be right. our first. Right. And Torcella and Joe Torcella, again, great record. And all these people raised a lot of money might lose. Yeah. Yeah. Got to bring up Arizona, Georgia. We touched on it. Two states that have been red for decades. Democrats made major strides in short periods of time. Nail biters. Um, what does it say about the state of those states? Or is this just a Trump thing? Because we've been saying, this is this just a Trump thing? Or is it really, are we really starting to feel the demographic shift? Well, Cherry, you're from Georgia. So you, you <laughs> probably know more than, more than we do. But I think, it's, I think it's a demographic shift for the most part. But it's also Donald Trump. I mean, you look at Arizona. Think about this. How he went after John McCain. And Cindy McCain endorsed Joe Biden. You have to believe that gets you a few thousand votes, at least. 
you know, in a, in a, in a close election. No. So look, it's a demographic. You're going to get that. Texas didn't go this time. Texas is going to go, may, might go the next time. Yeah, no, wholeheartedly agree. And I'm, I, I said that to my husband last night, Larry, I said, if it was anybody but Donald Trump, and if he would have handled COVID just a little bit better, not even like completely, just slightly better, Donald Trump would be our president. This is a nail biter. It should not be a nail biter for someone that was a former vice president under one of the most popular presidencies in our nation's history. Larry is absolutely right. If Donald Trump would have done just a little bit more for COVID, he would very easily be our president. I believe that 110%. Last question for you guys. Is, are things going to get crazy? Is, is Trump, if, you know, how's he going to take this loss? Trump has already said he's not conceding. Whether they declare Joe Biden the winner or not, he is not conceding. He just put it out on the, on the, on all the blogs. He's not going to go ahead and concede. I think it will be some issues. Y'all gearing up for some crazy? He's he's going to be he's going to have to leave, but he's going to be the same guy. Uh, the only difference is he can't blow up the world. I mean, but uh, he he'll still blow up a lot of things. And you know, you look what he's done. You know, talking about the mail-ins, um, and that's another thing, Cherry. I got. I really got to give the city commissioners of Philadelphia a lot of credit. You know, they they get a lot of grief. They get a lot of grief, but the way they stood this election up, they you know they got volunteers to work at those polling places to replace the older people who didn't want to work during COVID. They got them open. They got them in the mail-ins. They they you know they lowered the expectations. They said they're not going to be done till Friday, and it has been it's been seamless. It's, it's been seamless. And this was the first time, you know, we did mail-in. And I think we really got to give kudos. And by the way, that's a bipartisan commission. Yeah. And the Republican, Al Schmidt, was, you know, has been great. And um, I, so I think that we have to put give credit where credit's due there. Yeah, it seems no, like- Didn't I just say that? Shout out to Al Schmidt, who, you know, even with pressure from the party, he said, we will count every single vote and this will be fair. And, um, you know, I have so much respect for Al. Shout out to all the winners of this election. Election officials are the winners. Urban cities, major <laughs> winners. And um, so we'll see what else. What else happened? Thank you so much to Larry Seisler and Jasmine Sessom for coming on Flashpoint. Next up, Republicans are not giving in. We're also very skeptical of the process, and we want to see an examination of the process. A Pennsylvania conservative leader explains why the GOP isn't yet ready to concede. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. 
all of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is the Republican skepticism over the elections process. President Donald Trump and many Republicans have made unsubstantiated claims of election fraud. Multiple lawsuits have been filed. Dean Malik is a lawyer and a Republican leader and conservative radio host. He also served as one of the Republicans watching the vote count on election day in Bucks County. Dean, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Cherry. So you've been, you were part of the crew that was monitoring the canvassing of, of ballots in, uh, in Bucks County. Uh, tell us, what was that like? It's, it's a, it was a situation unlike anything else I've ever experienced. I've been a poll watcher before, um, and typically it's a process. It's a long day. You know, you go into the polls, and the old system was that they would take the tapes out of the machines and they'd read them. And ordinarily, within an hour or two after the polls were closed, you'd watch and you'd see the totals racked up. This was very different. This was chaotic. Um, it's, it looked chaotic. It was a bit more orderly, though, in, in some ways. We were over at the Board of Elections in, in Doylestown, and they were doing the mail-in ballots and the absentee ballots. And so thousands upon thousands of pieces of mail were sent in. They were opened, and it was an assembly line process. And then after the exterior envelope was open, then they would verify that there was a privacy envelope and that's mandatory. Otherwise, if it comes in without a privacy envelope, it's considered a naked ballot and that's a void ballot. So the naked ballots were segregated, put into a different room. All the ballots that had issues, whether there was not a signature, whether there was a different return address from the registered voter address, um, and whether there was missing information, all those ballots were put into a different room and they were identified by category. Um, I, I just a very long, chaotic process, seemingly chaotic. Um, and uh, ultimately, the ballots that were, that were valid, that were good, the, the addresses matched, and they were in the appropriate privacy envelope, they were scanned in, just as you would if you were voting live. And there were some occasions during the day when um, I personally did not observe it, but others did, where poll workers were actually um, manually entering the votes for the voters instead of scanning in the ballot for whatever reason. Sometimes it was because the, the ballots were folded and they wouldn't scan properly. There was a lot of opportunity for mistakes, intentional or otherwise, during that process. The rooms were jam-packed in this time of COVID where everybody's concerned about the spread. You know, you could legitimately, I hate to use the word, but you could legitimately say the canvas itself was a super spreader because people were that close. Everyone was masked, but it was just impossible to, uh, you know, it's a tight space and everybody had watchers and everybody, every candidate was entitled to have a representative. Plus there was a large volume of poll workers who were there and a lot of cross-contamination items handled by multiple people. They say democracy is messy, so I appreciate that. But this was, this seemed to be a change from the way things used to be only a couple of years ago, not for the better, but for, but for the worse. We have a Republican-controlled legislature here in Pennsylvania. This was a law yeah. approved to allow mail-in ballots before COVID-19 by the Republicans. They also did not want these ballots pre-canvassed or at least have the envelopes open before election day. Do you think that was a mistake? I think that the concept of doing mail-ins as a substitute for in-person voting was a mistake. You have to take COVID into consideration, but the idea that the mail-in ballots, it, 
eliminated the, the, the possibility of people contaminating each other, I think is a bit absurd. What you had was instead of people standing in line on election day, you had people standing in line at drop boxes, you had people clustered together, sorting through mail-in ballots. So um, I don't think it eliminated that at all. The pre-canvas, yeah, probably should have been permitted. There probably should have been a, a way to pre-canvas the vote. So it wasn't all done on the same day. The Republican legislature, Republican majority legislature, I think most most Republicans are of the opinion that they made a big mistake in agreeing to this. And uh, I don't think it had to be done for COVID. I, I'm not sure what the solution could have been, but I'm, I'm certain that if the concern was that people were going to be in line for long periods of time close to each other, this didn't eliminate that at all. The old system was, a, I think, a much better system, though not perfect. It was better. It was more expeditious and it less, it was less likely to either disenfranchise someone or present an opportunity for deliberate um, fraud. Got to ask you, I mean, this has been a very tumultuous, uh, you know, um, election season, um, to say the least, post-election day, lots of tension um, as, you know, this is tight races all over the country. No, you're right. I mean, this is, we're in a bad time right now. I mean, I, I unfortunately, I see it an environment that's unlike any other presidential election I've ever seen. Um, and uh, in the past, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, if your candidate didn't win, you might have been unhappy about it, but people accepted it. Um, I think we're entering a period of time in our nation's history where the nation is so divided that there will be segments of the population that will never accept the outcome of an election unless it's an extraordinary landslide. And that's not likely because we have a polarized society. So you're not going to have those types of electoral landslides in the, in the foreseeable future. We don't have a national consensus on so many different issues right now, like it seemed to be the case that we did have years ago. Um, and it's, it's not a good thing. It's a dangerous climate that we're in. Um, I think that um, the, the Democrats sort of opened the door to the not my president um, mantra, you know, Trump, not my president, not my president. Election was stolen, Russian interference. And, you know, I think we're going to see they, no matter who's declared the winner of this, we're going to see a segment of this population that's going to simply say not my president. That's yeah. not good. But you also have President Donald Trump. I mean, to be fair, he's been alleging fraud before voting even started in most states. That's also uh, unprecedented in, in this country where you have yeah. a president saying fraud and we hadn't even started voting yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure ex which specific statements you're referring to, but I think that what he was alluding to is the possibility for the commission of, uh, for election fraud, not necessarily that happened. Um, and there, there are plenty of opportunities and plenty of juncture points where it could happen. And the optics of the way this whole, um, this entire, I'm sorry, lost your video there yeah. for a second. Um, the, the optics of the way this entire election is being handled lends itself to um, people assuming and then becoming very highly convinced that there's fraud whether it's proven or not. So I think the president was trying to point out that there are opportunities for fraud to arise. Um, and you know, I, I, you can argue about whether or not it's responsible to put that idea into mainstream discourse, but the Democrats have also done it too. 
Um, I, I more than anything, I just want this nation to somehow calm down right. on all sides and be able to have a transparent process, go through this election, tabulate the results in a way that's transparent. There will maybe, there will be a small number of people who will never accept the results no matter what they are. But if we have a transparent and fair process, um, hopefully the majority will accept it and learn to fight the next battle where it arises, but work together as a nation. We need healing after this. We will need healing. And my fear is it may get worse before it gets better. Yeah, there have been a couple of plots foiled just today, these past couple of days, where uh, people are trying to uh, damage the convention center where votes are being counted. Um, many of these are Trump supporters who are uh, thinking that, you know, something um, wayward has gone on. And um, so far, there has been very little evidence of any actual fraud going on. You have Republican governors in some of these states and Republican officials saying nothing is going on. Senator Toomey, who's a Republican, staunch Republican, follows uh, President Donald Trump uh, on, on many items, has said there was no fraud in Pennsylvania. Yeah. How do we stop this so that you won't have plots and people getting arrested and jailed uh, because they believe something that's coming from tweets? Right. Um, I mean, that, how do you stop people from jumping to conclusions and acting upon it? I don't know. Um, I think that I, I've had some debates with people about this issue, and people will say it's very irresponsible to allege fraud without evidence. Um, and at the same time, my response is that it's also, it's really naive to allege that there's no tampering and have blind faith in the process but and what I mean, you what gives us and does this pass rule 11 test you're, you're a lawyer you can't just you know especially when you're you know leader of the free world and things like that can does this even pass the rule 11 test would you put your bar license on the line for some of this stuff without more than just a simple allegation that something could happen Right. No, I mean, of course, you have to have some substantial evidence. And it's it's not, you know, one thing is that there are rules of evidence that apply to us in the court of law. There are also there's also the court of public opinion and the court of public opinion matters. And the the problem is that public confidence and faith in the process has been shaken among a large portion of the population. And, you know, that the Democrats felt that way too with the election of Trump. They lost confidence in the process too because they felt that there was interference and, and, and that there was meddling from an, a, a foreign power. So as a nation, we have different reasons, but a lot of people have lost confidence in the process. And, um, and that's, a, that, that is a, that's worse really than what you're talking about is the fact that any side can, can claim tampering or uh, manipulation um, when they don't have the faith in the process. And, you know, in law, I'll talk to you about another concept, which is the concept of a presumption. Is there legally a presumption that elections are valid and legal and there is no tampering? And if so, does that presumption apply to public opinion? I don't think it does. I think public opinion is skeptical and it took a lot to develop the level of confidence that we had that the outcome determines the winner. And for many years in this country, win, lose, or draw, people would accept the outcome. They wouldn't be happy about it. They would 
but they would accept it. And then we had these very, very large changes that happened over the past year or two. And it's really shaking confidence. And it's happened during a time when we have a particularly polarized society. Um, and both, both parties can be wrong. They can be extreme in their views. They can be they can be absolutely wedded to the confirmation bias that tells them only what they want to hear and excluding what they don't want to hear. Um, I don't think anybody can say that this, this process has been transparent. Um, and I don't think anybody can say that that fraud happened or rule it out and say that it has not happened until we have a real careful vetting. But and I, I think I this mean, is I something just, that should. I feel like uh, it's irresponsible. You know, we're both members of the bar and I do feel like it's irresponsible. Yeah to say things that are not fact-based. Uh, as a journalist, I, you know, people come down on journalists and media all the time for, for not using right. facts and, and to make allegations that are based on, quote, opinion that are literally pulled out of thin air without actual facts. There's a couple of facts, but, you know, you need facts to say, you know, if they had bags of stuff and they said, these are the facts, this is an issue, there is no facts. And you can't and you can't start saying opinion beats fact. That's the problem, because a lot of people are saying a lot of things based on zilch. And as a journalist, as an attorney, I mean, Dean, fact is fact. You can't opinion does not trump right. fact. Bottom line, and we all no, have to agree. We of, used to of agree on facts. No, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that unfortunately. Um, it's true that many people are living in, um, they have a, a mindset in which they blur the difference between opinion, speculation, supposition, and actual facts. And I agree with that. Um, and I'm not convinced that fraud has, has happened. I'm not convinced of it. Um, and I don't think many Republicans are convinced of it, but we're also very skeptical of the process and we want to see an examination of the process. And um, the the idea is that there's so many opportunities for bad actors to change the results here. Let's go through it and let's examine it and make sure that that hasn't happened. And there are certain things that, you know, that raise red flags, not necessarily are evidence of fraud, but when you have a presidential lead by several hundred thousand evaporate through late but, tabulated but then, votes. That is based on rules that Republicans, Republicans put in place. And it created, and, and, and if you, if, if Republicans had pushed their voters to, um, to vote by mail, we would, this, it would be more balanced, but they didn't. They said, show up in Please. person. This, this was all created by Republican, the Republican legislature here in Pennsylvania. Well, well you, you, you are correct. And I think many Republicans will agree with you that, that there were some really bad strategic errors made by the Republican party. Um, for example, I mean, what you said, the Republican Party, the legislators agreed to do mail-ins and, and absentee ballots, but then they acted as if the old rules still applied and that wasn't an option. So everybody needs to go to the polls. So what happens is that allows the Democrats to run up the score on them. So you can't claim cheating when the, your opposition party took advantage of the rule change and you didn't. I agree with that. Well, we just have to make sure that's what happened. Yeah, and, and I will leave it there, Dean, because I, I do want to say I appreciate you coming on, and I'm glad you were in there. You're a smart guy. You know, you were in there. It was crowded. You had all kinds of – it. I mean, you had cameras everywhere. You got Republicans in there, Democrats in there. Everybody's watching. 
Same thing happening here in Philadelphia. And um, you got, you know, we have Al Schmidt, who is respected by both sides of the aisle, saying that every vote will be counted. You know, I, I think a lot of our election officials are stand-up people. I think you're a stand-up guy. You know what I mean? So I Thank don't you. think that, you know, our, and Toomey, I mean, Toomey even says he believes our folks are stand-up guys. So in, in a lot of ways, we got we to gotta bring this back to the facts. And, um, and I hope we can do that all together. Because you're right, we needed some healing. Because we used, we're all, we all love Pennsylvania. We all love America. Right. I, I think we'll get through it. The Republic is strong enough to get through it. We just have to find, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said the better, better angels of our nature. We have to find that going forward and learn to disagree with each other respectfully and work together on the areas where we have common ground. Yeah. Well, Dean Malik, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. We'll leave it there. Next up, she spent seven years raising money for cancer, and she's only 14 years old. It shows me that it really does make a difference. An award-winning woman's through teen's effort and why it just keeps getting bigger. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And an award-winning Warminster team is continuing her project to raise money to help others. Let's welcome our Patriot Home Care changemaker, Savannah Zeman, founder of Savannah's Lemonade Stand. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So first of all, tell us what Savannah's Lemonade Stand is. So I started my lemonade stand to honor my kindergarten teacher. She passed away from cancer the year after I had her as my teacher. So I wanted to do something because she was the first person that I knew that had passed away. And it was hard for me, but I couldn't imagine it for her family members. And I didn't want anyone else to have to go through that. So I wanted to start something. And we thought a lemonade stand would be a good idea. So the first couple years, I donated the money that I raised to American Cancer Society. And then a few years later, um, my family friend passed away from cancer and he went to CHOP a lot. So now we started donating to CHOP and that's what we've been doing for the past four years about. And we've been raising a lot more money since the first year. And we have a goal of like a little bit more every year. You're 14 years old. Yeah. So what what made you, you've been doing this for seven years now. Uh, what made you, first of all, stick with it? Because a lot of people don't when they're yeah. kids. And, and what has it been like for you having started it so young? Well, I started it and I wanted to keep going because the first year it was just fun because I was younger and I had like one of my friends helping me out. And I didn't really realize like what it was at first. But then as I got older, it became like, more of something that was like known to me. So like a lot of my family and friends like knew that like this was what I do. As I added more things like other than the lemonade stand, it just got more and more like fun and like 
better for me, I guess. And last year when I won the Prudential Spirit of Community Award, that's when like I really knew that I should continue it because now it's getting like way more places than just a little lemonade stand in front of my house. Now it's like a really big thing. Yeah. And so tell us how it kind of grew. Like the first year, I think I raised about $200 and then the next year, $300, $400. And um, it really started to grow last year when I won the Prudential Spirit of Community Award and we were supposed to go to Washington, D.C. But of course, that got canceled because of COVID. And so instead, they gave us $2,500 to donate to a charity. And someone wrote an article about me. And then a philanthropist saw it and donated another $2,500. So then it, then I donated that to the farmer's market near my house. So then it was just like, a bunch of people are seeing it and like it's growing like a lot from last year to now. So you basically blown up, so to speak. Yeah, I guess. Tell me what sort of motivates you to keep going and how do you see it going on in the future? Well, last year I was thinking how I was going to continue it because like a lemonade stand, usually people will only come out if it's like for a younger kid or something. But then we started adding the clothing drive, which was really helpful. Like what keeps me going is I volunteer for JRA, Jewish Relief Association, and they like donate food to like people in need. And you can actually go and you see like their reaction to everything, which I don't see when I'm giving the money to CHOP because it's just going for cancer research. But that's like, it shows me that it really does make a difference so that if I can see an impact in the future, then like it'd be so much better than just seeing like a little one because it'd be huge. So now you have a clothing drive. You could, What's your vision? Do you see it sort of growing even more? Yeah, so last year, I think we had about 200 bags around that. And we raised over $400 from that. And this year, I think we have around 500 bags. So we'll get like a significant amount of money, which we already surpassed our goal by about double for this year. So that will just like raise it about triple. I think hopefully we can continue that and people continue to donate because we put it on the Warminster patch and then it started to go a lot and people were just coming over. Like we didn't even know them and just dropping off bags of clothes. So our whole mirage is like, oh. That's beautiful. And what is your goal for this year? It was 1,500, but we're around 3,000 right now. So I'm hoping to get to 4,000 this year. Congratulations. I know you are, you all are accepting donations until when? December 5th. Where can people get the information on where to donate and drop off? So you can go to my Facebook page, which is Savannah's Lemonade Stand, and my Instagram, which is Savannah's Lemonade Stand, but with underscores in between Savannah's and Lemonade Stand. On the Instagram and the Facebook, there's my link for the online donations, which you can donate from that, and it will go straight to CHOP. Wonderful. And so I, I see this going forward. I mean, you're 14 now, at least for some more time. You got some few more years of doing this? Yeah, I'm hoping so. And even if it's not that I'm continuing a lemonade stand, just keeping the name of it and doing other charity events and stuff like that. Yeah. I think you're on to something, Savannah. You can make a difference no matter like how small, because I started it when I was so young and really didn't know what I was getting into, but I still wanted to make a difference. So even if it's something that small, it could lead to something a lot bigger. And just to try to support me if you can and donate on the online link, 
so that I can raise as much money as I can and hopefully get to my goal this year. And congratulations on your award and on all the wonderful things that you are doing. Uh, check out Savannah at Savannah's Lemonade Stand on Facebook and on Instagram. Thank you so much, Savannah, for being here on Flashpoint. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap up with a quote, here's one from the late great Congressman John Lewis. The vote is precious. It's almost sacred. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool or instrument that we have in a democratic society, and we must use it. The show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.